You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Here with uh, Chris Novembrino of Don't Worry About the Government and All in the Family. Uh, you know him. And I want to talk a bit about court packing. Uh, and I know it's a topic on, on your mind. Yes. Yes, it is. It's a topic on my mind because it's a topic that has started getting on the minds of others. So I think that court packing is diagnosing a symptom as a disease. So the the symptom here is we have a crisis of legitimacy in the Supreme Court. And so a number of people have looked at this and said, well, the issue is that it's illegitimate because the makeup of the Supreme Court is not as I would like it. So I think we should stack it. And so this started in The Intercept this week. Midi Hassan wrote an editorial, uh, a lengthy one that I'm going to talk about on Don't Worry About the Government Longer at Greater Length, where he argued that the court should be brought up to 11 justices and made uh, multiple different arguments as to why this is something of a wisdom. But I have seen that this argument has advanced even further in really about 72 hours to people making the argument that the Supreme Court should be brought up to 15 justices um, in in an attempt to reestablish legitimacy. It has resulted, the Kavanaugh nomination, in a radicalization of the left of center's approach towards the judiciary. Right, and so uh, court packing... um comes up from it actually you hear it a lot in not just in that but in a lot in social media you hear individuals mentioning it it's particularly coming from the left a little bit on the you know here poke right uh, almost in the sense of if you're going to do it we're going to do it before you kind of thing and that could certainly happen um so of course the quickest thing to say is that you can't court pack because fdr tried it and it didn't work and that's where i you know I'm the history guy, uh, history politics guy, right? And and uh, I'm a lot of times saying that, uh, you know, saying just that. I'm the one that will bring up that historic example. But I also find the reverse is true, that sometimes a historical example is so ingrained, but not all of the context surrounding the history. So we've got to look not just at the context, bring context to politics today, but also bring more context to to history to understand it better than, say, a bit of a textbook or quick response version. Because the FDR court stacking play, while not successful in the sense of stacking the court, was very effective in terms of getting his New Deal legislation passed, right? Well, absolutely. And you, you have to look at uh, several factors um, behind it that, first of all, 
um, if it's not known, that there is no provision in the Constitution for the size of the Supreme Court. So that's uh, Congress can determine that. So um, and you don't need a constitutional amendment. So Franklin Roosevelt, even even running in 1932, um, makes a quick reference to it's a little unclear if it's winning the Supreme Court or packing the Supreme Court, but that he's that he's he wants the Congress and he wants the Supreme Court. In 1933, he makes a a quick reference to packing the court. It's it's enough to get the Republican chairman to have a counter statement that that would be outrageous. But it's as he starts out and he has Congress, they got 90 plus seats in Congress. They start passing all of this legislation and many of the New Deal legislations passed by an overwhelming Congress elected by the people and signed by the president are being ruled unconstitutional in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is full of older men. Uh, some have been appointed by Wilson or others. And it's in particularly when a New York minimum wage law that even a lot of moderates on the GOP side felt was, uh, you know, was a basically a minimum wage will, bill. And this is the context, by the way, we have to see the, these things, that this is a, a kind of bill that almost, whether one wants to do a minimum wage or not, almost no one on any 2018 political spectrum thinks that you can't do a minimum wage bill. But at that time, that's the kind of thing that the Supreme Court was ruling unconstitutional. I think it's important to think about that when you think about the size of the problem that FDR was confronting. There are several other bills. He was really worried about Social Security. He's getting worried about the, um, you know, the uh, Wagner Act, which which was price controls and wage controls, and you know, and and um, labor unions and things like that. He's getting wonder. He's starting to wonder if he can have any economic effect at all when he was very much elected to do something about the economy. And so uh, he comes up with, after a series of frustrations, a plan that uh, he will add justices to the Supreme Court as they retire. So it would, you know, and this is the this is the difference between some of these proposals that could be floated now and what FDR was doing and why FDR's was so weak. One of it is that it was tied to age. So the president could appoint a new younger judge for each federal judge with 10 years of service who did not retire or resign after reaching 70 years. So they were going to limit him to no more than six, which is still a lot. (laughs) And uh, it also applied to lower level uh, courts as well. So it was allowing the president to quickly replace the federal judiciary. And, but it was tied to age. Now this uh, particular bill, first of all, this is the point that where it's later in FDR's term, um, the year, I think it was 37 to get this right, but, uh, yeah, I think it was 37, February 5th, 1937 is when he presents it. This is after there's some downtick in the economy. Roosevelt has developed opposition, even within the democratic party among Southern conservatives. He's also a large uh, figure. And this is what makes it so different from any court packing plan you could have today. A lot of it was not about court packing at all. It was about how powerful we wanted to make a president. 
which in many ways is the exact opposite of the argument of some people who want to pack the court now to protect against the presidency. So that's one thing to consider, and that's where some of the opposition came from. Also, making something about age when there were a lot of like, you know, 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds in the U.S. Senate was not very smart. Hit uh, the Senate like a, you know, like a lead balloon, as it were. Um, There are a couple other mistakes that he made probably releasing it too fast, uh, not allowing the Senate to be involved in it. One of the things Speaker Bankhead says is, is I wonder why the president wouldn't want to contact me about something like this. <laughs> um, Senate doesn't like it. There's tremendous opposition. It's just at the time where some of the senators are looking for an issue to buck Roosevelt on. They he's so popular and his legislation is so popular that they have to vote every time. And they're starting to feel that a little bit, that friction. One senator in particular, um, Hatton Sumner's um, well, let's just say congressman in case I get, I'm sure it's Senator Hatton Sumner says um, this is where I cash in my chips. So it's the issue that a lot of people just were – there was a lot of pent-up frustration. And so it goes beyond just the issue of court packing. But then over the time, it's taken this magical significance that you can't pack the court. Well, you absolutely can. And there's nothing uh, in in history that would prevent it from happening. And particularly when you're seeing people engage in a lot of new and different types of tactics Norm in politics. The thing that was keeping the Supreme Court at nine and has created that nine is a norm. And so the thing for a lot of Trump partisans to consider is that once you play a new politics of unsacred norms and you open up the permission structure to disrespect norms Everyone is going to disrespect norms. You're not going to be able to use the norms as a weapon. Let's take a step from that, by the way. And 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 I don't know if it's to be fair or not, or just to look at it a little differently. It's not just a few people in the room stepping away from norms. It's the American people who have decided. That, well, groups of the American people who have decided they'd rather step away from norms. They hate norms. The word establishment, right? I think swing voters have been sort of sending this message to the ballot box routinely, is that they want to change. That people who are true independents and vote for Bush and then Obama and then Trump and have a continuity through it, they tend to tell themselves when they go to vote, I just think it's time for a change. And they don't like politics as usual, which is ultimately how Trump arrived here. It, it, it all of his success. The same thing with Bernie too. All of his success in 2016, I think, of course. roots back to Americans thinking a lot of the game is unpalatable and unsatisfactory and isn't yielding results, and so they wanted someone to smash up norms. I, I think that people want the norms smashed up. They don't like. And the problem is when you vote to throw stuff in the fireplace, eventually things that you like get thrown in the fireplace as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's what will be found out with a, any of these things. And it will be, whoa, uh, when there's a uh, when there's a, you know, the, the system is designed with a lot of checks and balances. The institutions are, are kind of increase that check and balance. Remember, there's nothing in the Constitution about filibusters, but filibusters created an additional check, not one I particularly liked, 
but an additional check. The idea of the Rules Committee in the House and the control of the Speaker and control of legislation and rules packages surrounding every bill. These are things that are not in the Constitution that create additional slowdowns and checks and things. And you have, um, I think it's awfully interesting to look at it from that consumer of politics point of view and say, just to say consumers are getting more involved with their doctor and they're getting more involved with their politician. Guess what? They know what the plays are. They're smarter. I mean, this would be the most positive view of things that the consumer of politics knows your meta now. They know how the game is played. They know what the Democrats do this, the Republicans do this. Uh, they've seen it on the news. They, you, you've there's been so much analysis of it. There's blogs. There's social media now. It's not just a few people watching C-SPAN as it might have been in the 90s. They no longer just see an original instance of, say, a Supreme Court justice being challenged. They see it as part of an archetype, as part of a meta, as, oh, this is what you do. They see these things as um, – they see how the game is played. You know, in football, we'd say they, they're watching the film. The American people have been watching the film. They want to change. They want to change the game and shake things up. And so um, that's not just Mitch McConnell or a few people in the room. Mitch McConnell is responding, and when he didn't respond, he got a lot of criticism for it. Mitch McConnell is responding to a feeling in the Republican Party that uh, you're not fighting enough. You need to fight. You need to fight more. That goes back to 2010. Like, mm -hmm. the Tea Party really started this modern iteration of, you need to fight harder. We need to fight harder. And it got rolling with the Obamacare repeal bill. Uh, the Republicans had an outcry from their base that they very much did not want the Affordable Care Act to be law. And it placed on the Republicans kind of an impossible burden ultimately was demonstrated to be an impossible burden of trying to repeal Obamacare. And they were unable to deliver that. But in making that promise, which was a promise made in response to the disposition of their base, you need to fight harder. That opened up the door. Uh, the last eight years, it, it is... It is of a piece that ends in Trump. Trump has moved things even further, and he is doing his own very unique, specific, unique unto him things to American politics. But it starts with the Tea Party, at least as far as I can tell, in terms of charging up that Republican base into this disposition. Yeah, the Democratic side, you only have it with, with uh, I believe, the Bernie Sanders campaign. I think the Howard Dean campaign in 2004 was a little bit where he said, I want to be the Democrat. We'll Occupy Wall Street in there, mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, Occupy. You see a little bit on the left. I, I think it was a bit of a hockey stick, slower, but then moved up really fast. So watch out for that one. The Daily Coast, the 2000. Six activities surrounding, like uh, the, uh, when when Daily Coast was big, you got to you got to fight harder against Bush and and what he's doing, and not being satisfied with more moderate uh, Democrats. I think in uh, the 2006 election, the way that was played out, I think that um, all of that plays into it on both sides, where you have the better play is there. So, given that context, you take the issue of court packing, and you don't even have a constitutional violation. It's a simple Senate bill that needs to be uh, forged and passed and signed by the president. Now, why is it so disastrous in many minds? Because it hasn't been done. And why is it so disastrous in, in many minds? Because 
Um, the one time it was attempted, one of the greatest politicians in American history was nearly brought down because of it. I mean, uh, you know, he's it's the first time really significantly that the Senate rebuffs him. And, um, you know, Vice President Garner tells him, you know, you're beat. You don't have the votes here. Drop it. And uh, he, uh, you know, he, uh, I think uh, it was Harold Ickes who said uh, he was um, punch drunk from the punishment. Uh, Newspapers are saying he lost his magic. He goes on a trip, a train trip up to the Northwest to recover. He's, you know, physically. And, of course, all the politicians that opposed him in the Senate want to join him on this train trip. So it's not exactly like FDR lost all the magic there. They definitely want to repair relations with him pretty quickly because he's still very uh, popular during this time. But it's basically like, hey, FDR tried that. You don't touch that. You got to look at some of the differences. Well, it's also what we were fighting around, right? So you mentioned earlier that the fight at that time was around a minimum wage bill. Well, the thing that all of this judiciary stuff is really built around, it's around two different court cases. There is the Chevron deference from the early 1980s, and then there's Roe versus Wade. And. That is the battleground over which this war for the judiciary is being fought. And I I think because it is about this very heartfelt issue of abortion, it is very hard to see a way that you diffuse this by stacking the courts. Back to FDR for a second. One thing that's very important to note as a key difference with the way it might happen now, it's all conjecture, of course, but it's 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 recent conjecture. Um, if uh, the way FDR did it, one of the key mistakes, first of all, it was way too long. It was way too uh, powerful. Six seats. Are you crazy? Um, it involved age. It brought up all these bad issues. The, the process was terrible. Uh, he was to, he was seen as too powerful. It also was never announced as part of a campaign. He did not bring this up in 1930. There is a vague reference in 1932. He doesn't bring this up in the 1936 campaign. It's not what he runs on. What if you had a party that ran on this issue, put it before the American people, the candidate for president wanted it, the congressional candidates wanted it. Would people still start talking about FDR? Me, with my knowledge of history, I have to say, well, you got to look. It'd be hard to argue it's a shock when you say up front, this is what we're here to deliver. Right. And then when you deliver it. Now, uh, of course, uh, how you do it's going to be important. I think, um, as you referenced, what ended up happening with FDR is that he not only didn't need to do it in the end, um, but it ended. he ended up prospering and becoming, because of the length of his presidential term, become one of the biggest influences on the Supreme Court. You know, when people say the Earl Warren Court, talking about the 60s, I think what you have to understand is that several of those appointments that led to the Earl Warren Court, even though he didn't appoint Earl Warren, were Franklin Roosevelt. So it was really a Franklin Roosevelt-influenced court. You had uh, o. Douglas and you had uh, Hugo Black on there, who were the key, you know, the key drivers of some of the the liberal decisions of uh, the court at that time. So he had a big influence. He'd get several people on the court, uh, Frankfurter, uh, uh, Robert Jackson. You know, it would really totally change from the from the, the old horseman uh, to, uh, to a different type of court. One of the things that saves, um, in addition to FDR's bill dying in the Senate, he could have tried again. 
But one of the things that's going to happen in this time is that Justice Owen Roberts, who is kind of the swing at that time, some people said he wanted to run for president or not, he switches his decision. And so in a Washington state minimum wage decision again, all of a sudden it's now constitutional where it wasn't before. And they called it the stitch in, um, the stitch in, nine, um, the stitch in time that saved nine. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Owen Roberts argued that it was just simply badly argued before him, before, and now it was well argued this time. It wasn't a he didn't change, um, but he did change. His decision changed. And that, and also, they didn't find the Wagner Act unconstitutional in certain cases. So there was also a lightening of the treatment of New Deal legislation by the Supreme Court, and then eventually um, a significant older justice um, retiring, um, what's his name here? I think it's important. Um, at Van Devanter. Uh, so Van Devanter resigns and he's a significant one of what they call the four horsemen who are holding back the, uh, the court and holding back, uh, activity that the Congress and the president are approving. So if you, um, so when you look at that precedent, it's actually a weaker precedent than what people say. It's not exactly the foreboding action that people have it to be, and it also involved a loosening of the legislation. If that, if the will of the people, so to speak, at least expressed through Congress and the signing of the president, um, is not heeded time and time again, you could open up a new opportunity for this. So I think that it involves both. The idea to do it, which maybe it's too early to announce something like that, and then um, look at what does happen. Okay, Kavanaugh gets on the court. I mean, let's see what he does. People were talking about impeaching him. That That's being discussed still. Impeachment's just as tough as impeaching the president. You're going to need two-thirds of the Senate. I don't think impeachment is useful when it comes to political capital. No, it's an absolute last resort, and that's the way it's functioned throughout history. And, and attempts to impeach judges, I mean, starting with the, the the only Supreme Court justice that, and it failed, would have been Chase. And there's a real case for him, by the way, when you go back. He was a very uh, uh, biased uh, judge in court, you know, arguing the prosecution's case for it and things like that. But he wasn't impeached. And I think there's a, there's a again, that's something that's not foreboding. It could happen. And there certainly have been lower justices that have been brought up and impeached and some that have not. But um, I think that route um, is enormously difficult. Now, in the thing you're saying, which is kind of like push out or kind of um, a shame out, a shame out of a justice, 
that actually uh, is the way that Nixon got a good deal of control over the Supreme Court. And that was done not only uh, before he became president with Abe Fortas, but also with O'Douglas and also with, um, to an extent, with Hugo Black, although Hugo Black was also very sick. But they were pushing some of these moral issues as well, trying to get, um, uh, you know, opinion changed. Because uh, I And you could see that happen with a Clarence Thomas. You could see the negative campaign increasing negative sentiment against a Clarence Thomas to get him to step down and ditto with Kavanaugh as well. I think the court, see, when, when we start bringing up that and you, and you look at me, and I know it, it probably sounds crazy to a lot of people, but the packing... Sounds so packing is really the wrong word. I mean, it, it is and it isn't. It's the using the uh, uh, expanding using the con- how uh, using the constitutional power that the Congress has to expand the court to uh, facilitate uh, you know American happiness. How about that? <laughs> now that's going to be real political. Now, um, if you well, happiness is an abstract concept. Exactly, exactly. But if happy, but if you see that it's bitterness because, let's say, Roe v. Wade is overturned in a case, um, if it's bitterness that results from that, and you're looking to, that becomes a greater justification for packing a court, say, than doing it beforehand. Certainly to reorder the court, right? So the move away from packing. There are other ideas about rebalancing and resetting the court that I think have not really been discussed or entertained by either side because for both the Republicans and the Democrats, it is a war, it is a crusade for your judiciary. It's not about getting the court system to be... Something close to, let's say, neutral. Crazy idea here. Um, but th- you could also see an idea of resculpting the judiciary. Let's say bring it up to 12, where we want to have six Republican justices or six originalist jurists and um, six living constitution jurists. I don't know what their, their term is. But you, you have... You could see a way of doing this or a proposal to reshape the judiciary that doesn't necessarily result in what you would dub as packing or stacking. Uh, There's a number of ways to do it. Uh, Since it's such a large uh, step and normally in American history, large pieces of legislation never get passed without bipartisan support, you could throw – a token to the other side, you could say something like, if you allow us uh, an extra judge, we'll give you something you want. I don't know what that would exactly be, but something that's been bugging them for a long time, maybe a state's rights issue, a piece of federalism that Democrats would normally never give up, will give up in exchange. I mean, you can. You, there's all sorts of scenarios um, you could imagine. Here's the thing, and, and we, of course, need to address it. it. Here's the first thing someone's going to say about packing the court. I think it's already been hinted at that, hey, if Democrats are going to do this, uh, we're going to do it before they can even do it, um, and, and then vice versa. So if you do it, we're going to do it. So then you'll have a court of 20 people, and I do understand the argument. The other related argument would be that you're reducing the integrity of the court, and I will say – The court was not silent during FDR's proposed packing uh, plan. Um, Charles Evans Hughes, who had been the 1916 Republican candidate, so was a politician, also governor of New York, was fervently against it and issued a statement. And coming from the chief justice defending the honor of the court was one of those sentimental moments that allowed a lot of senators who were afraid to take on FDR 
allowed them the the cover they needed defending the court. And you saw a little bit of that this time with John Paul Stevens weighing in on the Kavanaugh nomination, and I believe it was either Sotomayor or Ruth Bader Ginsburg sort of speaking more obliquely. So it's not hard to imagine a scenario where that occurs this time around as well. Oh, um, I I would almost guarantee that any court packing plan would be opposed um, strongly by the uh, at least Chief Justice Roberts, who is not only the head of the court, we have to remember, he's the Chief Justice of the United States, it's the head of the entire federal judiciary and has and is the person that is the spokesperson for the federal judiciary. Uh, so I think that there would be a statement from that. I do think that's why, unlike in FDR's case where it was kind of idea of the week, um, it would have to be something that was solicited from the American people uh, in response probably to some really grave decision that was very unpopular and part of a campaign where it was either at least a midterm, if not a presidential election, where the issue was floated. And then there would be a mandate for it that that would probably be what you would need to supersede. Well, I understand, Chief Justice, and I appreciate your opinion, but this is what the American people want. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, the smart thing to do right now. And John Roberts is, I guess, sort of in a position to do it would be to send up smoke signals signaling. I'm not touching Roe from this court. Everybody cool out. We're not doing Roe. I don't think that the court would ever do that. That's something that they um, that they um, the court cannot comment on a case before it comes. Yeah, right. They're not in a position to do that, but that is, to me, the one thing that could sort of diffuse the tension of the moment. You do it as decisions come in. I mean, what happens is nowadays with the Supreme Court is, okay, they can only rule where either the Solicitor General wants them to hear something. Um, In other words, the government is saying, please hear this, or the the, uh, – there's conflicting cases between federal courts, but it's – I think, and, you know, clerks reviewing things can find a lot of conflict, and there are certain circuits that disagree a lot. So finding conflicting cases is never that difficult, and then certiorari is going to... Well, they can swat down, yeah, I was going to say, they can swat down things in certain send that message. I think Kennedy, see the certiorari uh, angle here, because Kennedy might have been hesitant on certiorari in some of these cases, but now you'll have Kavanaugh being that uh, fourth vote. So you just need four. So you got uh, right, Alito. Right. If they can get uh, Roberts, you have Alito, Roberts, um, Ka- uh, Kavanaugh, and uh, Thomas. Oh, Thomas and – what am I saying? Of course. What am I saying here? You easily have four votes even without Roberts. You can Roberts. actually do all of this without Roberts and force Roberts' hand. Now, Roberts might come to resent that. Well, he'll not only come to resent it uh, if that is the way it plays out, but um, also – you 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 must remember that uh, if you're going for certiorari, you're only getting the case to be heard by Roberts, and and of course you don't right. want to. Uh, right. It's a very collegial body. It really is. Um, it is. Uh, they have their disagreements. There is vote trading. There is some um, personal things that go on. Um, vote trading. That sounds. There isn't vote trading like there is in a in a Congress, but there are. Um, talks and negotiations and talks and and coalitions on different cases but it's very collegial and um you know the 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 famous case of uh Scalia and um, Ginsburg is um 
you know, is is pretty common in the court. Um, this is a small group that's together a lot. Uh, now, no one talks about Scalia and O'Connor. They all talk about Scalia and Ginsburg. It wasn't so nice with uh, O'Connor and, and and Scalia, but but collegial enough. They work together, all right. So, yeah, you're not gonna that annoyance that you're talking about will be expressed in a much faster fashion or just kind of a, a worked out, uh, I believe. Um, but they're going to do some test cases if they want them to be heard. Um, and uh, and so that would open up an opportunity um, through some of the test cases. You could see whether it is very common for justices to change as the court changes. We, we know that. That's the easiest thing to look at. I mean, Justice Stevens was a law and order Republican. Um, he felt that, in fact, many people said Clement Hainsworth, that Nixon was trying to get the Southerner. Nixon was trying to get on the Supreme Court. You know, Stevens was very similar to him in his cases. But he became one of the court's liberals as the court shifted. And and judges maybe – I don't – it's not really a political action. It's the it's the back and forth on decisions. It's how it's, – it's weird. You are a different person when you're the fifth vote on the Supreme Court. You're not when you're in the in the background and you're just kind of flavoring a decision or writing a little bit of a concurrence on the way the court's going to go anyway. So, and Roberts has sort of been signaling that he is thinking about how he would be if he were the swing vote on the court. I look at the Affordable Care Act decision as him rolling out his Roberts centrism. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a few things. Chief Justice doesn't have tremendous power in that sense. I mean, really, it's five justices of whoever they are that have the power. I mean, Rehnquist was getting outvoted left and right when he was appointed Chief Justice until he got his majority. But um, the Chief Justice does have a few things. For instance, if the Chief Justice is involved in a decision, he has the option of assigning the writing task. If he's not, if he's in the minority, he cannot do so. It's the senior justice uh, involved in in the in the minority. Uh, and, but if it's the, um, um, I, I should say, it's the senior justice in the majority. He gets to write the decision. He gets to write the decision. Now that's not without without its power. Uh, for now, you haven't seen that a lot. But Warren Berger was a big fan of that. He would take the decision and tone it down. A couple of those busing cases in the seventies. He toned down where the rest of the justices thought they were going by being the actual author of the decision. Um, he can control what's being um, decided, uh, what they're going to talk about. He controls the conference. He can narrow stuff down. Yeah, there's some powers that he has. Uh, if you uh, in oral arguments, he's controlling that discussion. If somebody talks too long, he's going to calm that down. He doesn't normally do it to the justices. He, uh, for instance, um. Too many times they're talking over Ginsburg, and he's, he's, he is the one saying, uh, uh, please, can we answer uh, Justice Ginsburg's question? Um, uh, that, that, that's what I say in response to people saying, uh, you know, Thomas doesn't talk in the court. I don't think that there's a lot of opportunity to do so, by the way. <laughs> it's it's pretty fast. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, these are small powers, I know. But they and then being kind of the spokesperson for the court and just being a general figure of respect. I wouldn't go too far with it. And again, I don't think even Kennedy was that uh, far 
um, in terms of, and he changed on a lot of things. Look at Kennedy's views on gay rights, for instance. I mean, that changed over time. So it's not just Kennedy always being the swing, but um, being seen, maybe the spotlight's on them more. And what we don't see are the machinations in the back of the hall or on the Supreme Court basketball court or what happens there and uh, uh, where some of this has always been going on and there's been swing-type things going on in decisions. Um, I look at Heller, uh, the gun decision, um, and there's some provision in there about what the decision's not doing. And uh, I often wonder if that was some backroom stuff with with Kennedy or with uh, Roberts. I, I'm not sure. But those are parts of it that are being tested, and there's a test case in California that has not been able to obtain certiari. Uh, Scalia, while he was still alive, wanted that case to be heard, and it was a town in South um, in uh, Southern California, I believe, that wanted to ban assault weapons in the town. It is currently still the law in that town because the Heller decision does not prevent all type of weapons from being banned. It was just that the uh, D.C. banning all handguns was against the Second Amendment. So um, keep keep on the lookout for, for cases like that that are going to get re-adjudicated. Yes, certainly. And you could see people like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh wanting to make their stamp on the court by rehearing a court case like that. Yeah, I mean, that's two new, you know, again, you know, Nixon got four and a Supreme Court chief. Um, uh, Nixon um, really changed the court. He didn't change it. You know, everyone brings up U.S. versus Nixon. To me, that was a bit of an obvious case. The president's above, not above the law. I mean, just in almost anyone, but the most partisan justice would have been decided. He had a big input on the on the court, even if they decided against him in Watergate. Uh he moved the court. He didn't move it completely to turn it into a, an opposite of an Earl Warren Cart court, but he certainly moved it. You don't that that stopped a lot of the um, busing uh, in the United States uh, that was probably about to hit a lot of the North. Um, you know, if, if it was still a Warren court, so there's a lot of impact that that has. Trump's got two now. These are two new justices. I think he's going to have three by the end of this term. I, I think that at some point here in the next 12 months, we will hear that Clarence Thomas is going to be wrapping up and they will have another Supreme Court seat for election time because for the Republicans, strategically, politically speaking, they have always sort of made this deal. I mean, we used to call it Buck Gorsuch, but now we can just say Buck the court that you aren't voting for Trump. That he says all of these awful things, he does things that are racist, mean, insulting, all sorts of things. But put that all in a box, what you're getting is the court. I could see the Supreme Court and Clarence Thomas's seat being that final carrot for the 2020 election on the Republican side. You bring up an interesting point that I haven't heard of um, before, but now it is interesting because we've seen how S- Supreme Court nominees... Once in 2016 and possibly twice inadvertently have uh, assisted um, Republicans, perhaps. I mean, if we if we are to believe they got this tremendous momentum that they 
uh, are claiming versus at a Kavanaugh in their base and things. I think this is a double-edged sword because what you would also be teasing in that framing is it's not just Thomas's seat we're going to replace if you reelect us. We're going to get Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. And I do think that that is definitely a red line now for Democrats. Well, I mean, of course, and she's an icon and, uh, you know, very, very... She's got the movie coming out, the way the Kavanaugh hearings went down. I just think that there are a lot of streams culturally that have come together that have elevated Ruth Bader Ginsburg to sort of a judicial sainthood. Oh, uh, absolutely. But, you know, uh, the the notorious RGB, right? (laughs) You know? Yeah, um, right, right, right. You know, uh, uh, I... um, I, uh, so putting it in that context, uh, one quick thought, though, that uh, the idea that justices would retire like this, uh, that I wonder if Thomas retires, you know, and, and he was chosen at a very young age, um, uh, Thomas, young for Supreme Court justice. Incidentally, Roberts was, too, which I think now it shows you how things go right during the Bush administration when they appointed that young chief justice. Oh, Democrats are probably like from the sidelines, like, oh, God, our team lost again. Now, I'm sure many a Democrat is like, oh, I'm really glad uh, that Bush uh, pointed that young Sotomayor guy. and Kagan were also in their <laughs> mid-50s. Yeah, I, I do think that that is the new norm. And frankly, in terms of that norm shift, I think that that's a positive because I got the argument for having an older jurist on the court. They're only going to be there for 12 to 15 years, and that keeps the court cycling through. However, I think that there is a decent affirmative argument for younger justices getting onto the Supreme Court, provided they're qualified, in the sense that they are from our era. Um, some of the older justices, they you know they lived in these austere ivory towers and it allowed them to think about the constitution this deeply philosophical way and all of us could just live it practically speaking whereas having younger justices gives the court an edge like these are people who know how to use the internet and i think that that's net positive although i do think that there is a negative in the fact that these people stay on the court for too long so in my ideal scenario you'd get on the court in your mid-50s and you'd leave the court in your mid-70s i think that um the one positive about court packing um and there are negatives of course the one positive that you come out of with is that if you're adding a few seats, you're taking away what is probably the horrible part of all this process, that we're sitting there talking about the lives of people and and of these, and in many cases, very respected legal minds and, and just looking at their health and wondering whether they're going to survive or not. And and it's, it's a terrible part of the whole process and it, that it, depends on life the the founding fathers did it because they wanted the independence of the judiciary uh and that was a way to establish it and it worked probably beyond their dreams in terms of all through jefferson madison and monroe's term you had a a court system that was being a check on on that when there were no politics available through three presidencies that would change that thinking, you know, in, in, in a meaningful way. Um, you, on the other hand, you know, it works in some cases. On the other hand, sometimes we find it um, 
disappointing and you do wonder about that life using human life instead of some um, other kind of safeguard like perhaps a set of years that is very long that is very long and letting the electoral policy not uh, process not de- not preserving the independence of the judiciary without um, you know without getting into these issues of health and human life and and that kind of thing determining um, all of our uh, one person's life determining all of our politics which is so king-like in a way um, and and it you know it, in the other thing to say about packing the court again I Defy expanding the court might be the way to, to say it. Maybe you do the expansion over time. So, hey, we're doing one now and we're going to put in the legislation that this will be done in, in 10 years again. Um, is your equalizing branches too that if the Supreme Court goes too extremely in one direction, uh, that it's not allowing to pass legislation coming from the people's representatives and the popularly elected president conferring, you know, it's it's now outsized itself and has to be dealt with. And if that's what it's used as, as a remedy, I think you're not going to have the example that FDR ran into. Chris, thanks for coming on. My history can beat up your politics. Always great to Always great to hear from you. Where can people find your stuff? Well, Bruce, it's always great to merge all of the consonants together with you once again and form a Pangea of consonants, as it were. You can hear me over at Don'tWorry.TV. That's Don't Worry About the Government, my other podcast. Also at Patreon.com slash DWATG. My other other show is the All in the Family podcast, which you can hear at the all in the family podcast.com or actually I'm sorry it's all in the family podcast.com but search for it you'll find it or patreon.com slash all in the family also on iTunes and Stitcher you can find me on Twitter at C-H-R-I-S-N-O-V-E-M-B-R-I-N-O thanks for having me on Bruce thanks Chris